Hello and welcome to Gripping in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. For those of us that are not scientists, we cannot help but have our understanding of animals coloured by stereotype, metaphor and folklore. Hence our flawed sense of the wasp, so often seen as the anti-bee. The bee giveth, the wasp taketh away. We see the bee as an industrious, intelligent and cheerful animal. The wasp, we understand, as foul-tempered, aggressive and bloody-minded. What's lying then beyond our surface-level understanding of the wasp? Beyond the anti-bee narrative, beyond our fears. Look, if you've been stung by a raggy wasp when you're enjoying a picnic, I'm sorry, and I hope you're alright. However, there's surely more to wasps than this. After all, this could well be the most specious, the most diverse of any insect group, and therefore perhaps the most diverse group of any animal. And given that diversity, what behaviours, what strange lives are unfolding within the wasps of which we're unaware? With any insect, with anything, the devil is in the detail. I want to know more about wasps. I want to know what incredible story is being lost within the droning buzz of your classic yellow and black yellow jacket wasp. Bothersome creatures who chase around beer gardens whilst people shout, if you keep still, it won't sting you. To learn more about wasps, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Serian Sumner, a passionate defender of wasps who has spent 25 years studying these amazing animals. Serian has also just written a fantastic book all about wasp diversity and the value of wasps, which is called Endless Forms. So join me in conversation with Serian to reveal the incredible endless forms of wasps. Hiya, Serian, how are you this evening? I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm alright. It's the last day of term for me, so I'm sort of floating along on a, uh, a sort of a wonderful cloud. But I'm celebrating the start of the holidays with a big chat about wasps, which is Brilliant. exactly <laughs> what I would choose to do. I thought actually that I saw some interesting wasps knocking about today, but the ants were flying. Ah, um, interesting. Yeah. I was just out in the garden and I didn't see anything. Certainly saw okay. ants, but I didn't see flying ants, so... Ah. Well, I'm out in Madrid where it's... Oh, right. So it's, it's, oh. it's hot. <laughs> I see. Yeah, you're I don't know what ants are flying. <laughs> but we're not interested in ants, except sort of in terms of tangential relationships. We want to talk about wasps, right? Because you've written this fantastic book, Endless Forms. It's jam-packed with science and flag-waving on behalf of the wasp community. And I was wondering, in reading it, the opening few pages are tinged with that sense of someone who must surely have spent a great deal of time arguing about wasps and arguing about the merits of wasps and, you know, yeah. being challenged over wasps. Yeah. And I wondered if writing this book, is this the culmination of all those arguments? Yeah, I think so. I mean, from I've been studying wasps for 25 years almost. And actually, you know, my PhD, when I first started in research, my PhD was on wasps. And I had quite a clear memory of... Being at a party that my drinks party that my parents were having, um, I'd come home in the summer holidays or something, and one of their friends going, "Oh, so I hear you're doing a PhD. What's it on?" I said, "Oh, it's on the sex behavior, sex life of wasps." And they went, "Oh, well, what's the point in taxpayers' money being spent on wasp research? What's the point of that?" 
Mm. And that was kind of, I was a bit taken back by that. And I thought they'd be really impressed that I was doing a PhD in the sex life of wasps. But no, I mean, that was sort of the bit, and that marked the beginning of what has become a, a repeat, a worn out record of whenever I tell somebody what I do, they go, oh, wasps don't like wasps. What's the point of wasps? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, I get, so I, I began to start to address, I got a bit annoyed about this about 10 years ago. And I, at first I thought it, maybe it was just me. I was a bit weird. And why didn't other people like wasps? And then I realised that actually people don't like wasps because they don't understand wasps. They don't know anything about them. So their, their sort of their hatred, their dislike or their disrespect for wasps just comes from ignorance. And so I started trying to do kind of one woman show in going to like natural history societies and beekeepers associations and women's institute talks around the country. Anyone who'd have me, I'd go to a village hall, and I'd rant about wasps, show them pictures of wasps, tell them about my research. And I saw that people were actually convinced, you know, they'd come into mm -hmm. the room and I'd ask for a show of hands, so who likes wasps or who, who doesn't like wasps? And everybody's hand would go up and then say, who's been stung? And everybody's hand would go up. Um, and then I would tell them what wasps do and how important they are. And at the end of the talk, I'd say, so who likes wasps now? And actually, a lot of people would put their hands up. And I realised that people's perceptions of wasps could really be changed by just telling them a little bit about the science of wasps and the important things that wasps do in the environment. Of course, it, it sounds like it's a it's a a theme that is repeated by a lot of people that care about insects and that care about invertebrates. Is that there is that resistance from the or that we, we could say ignorance but that from the general public, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, people hate spiders, people hate woodlice, they hate worms, they have any kind of creepy crawly. It, but as soon as they realise that they do something useful, they go, oh, OK. I, I mean, bees is a brilliant example. And I know in the book I talk a lot about, I might come across as being slightly angry about all this bee love that's out there. And I'm not angry I'm not anti at all. I mean, I, you know, I think it's absolutely brilliant that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, if you walked into a garden centre, you wouldn't have been tripping over bee hotels. And yet yes. today, that's exactly what you're tripping over. And I think that's brilliant. You know, people are encouraged. You know, I, I look out my window and I've got my front garden is full of wildflowers. OK, maybe we're a bit atypical. But, you know, we're, people are planting wildflowers in their gardens in order to support pollinator populations like bees. And that's because there's been a lot of research that's gone into the importance of bees and in pollination. And the, as a result, there's been lots of media coverage of that science. Um, and so that media coverage reaches the masses and the people. And then gradually it reaches the commercial world. And everybody's writing books about bees and children's books about bees and cuddly toys. And I've got a mug in front of me with bees on it, believe mm. it or not. You can't get mugs with wasps on them, obviously. I must add at this point that my grandpa did have a mug with a wasp on it. Durham Wasps ice hockey team. The wasps. So there we are. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, we have the media, the, the mainstream media, the, the, the kind of the, the commercial world has such a powerful influence on how we perceive the, the, the environment the, and nature and how we then interact with it. And I think we just need to do the same thing with the lesser loved organisms. Mm -hmm. And wasps happen to be one of those organisms. Well, the, the specifically disliked ones, right? Because in the book, you mention 
this sort of piece of research you did where you canvassed opinion from lots of people on on their associations with wasps and on what they thought of wasps and and then sort of visually you show which words come out the most often and it's pretty predictable and the, the biggest word i think is sting annoying and all, all these sort of negative associations of of wasps that aren't necessarily indicative of this this huge group of insects and i wondered with that you know, if everyone in the world got to read your book, which, which God willing they will, what kind of words would you hope would be the words people did associate with these animals? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, that's exactly what I try and do when I give when I give talks to mm. people. I get them now. I actually get them to do an online, you know, a Mentimeter, give some words about wasps right. to start the talk and then at the end. And I hope to see that change in what they say. And um and, and the words that I always hope that people are going to come up with at the end of my talk and also at the end of reading my book, I would really hope that the big words are critical, essential, useful, pest controllers, farmers, friends, pollinators, you know, they're all the words that we, because we did the same, the study that you described, we also did the same for bees and we asked people to give words right. about bees and they came up with words that summed up the utility of bees, like like honey and pollination and flower. I think, yeah, those, I think I'd like to see the the equivalent kind of words of, of about, about the wasp's utility. But, but actually it's more than utility. It's more than, you know, we have a very sort of anthropocentric view of how to value yes. nature uh, in that it, if it has something that's good for us or benefits us, then we value it. And therefore we think it has a role in the planetary life <laughs> but actually it's more than just us we are just one part one facet one species on this planet um, and every organism has its role in an ecosystem and there's much more to the wasp than just what it does in these ecosystems and how we benefit from it there is the incredible diversity of wasps you know there's people think of wasps as being the yellow jacket that bothers them at the picnics in the summer and gets in their beer in the beer gardens mm -hmm. but actually that's just one species in fact there are a few species of wasps that look like that. There are yellow jackets, but there are a hundred thousand species of wasps out there in, across the planet, and there's only about fifty to seventy species that anyone in the world would encounter at their at their picnics, because the vast majority of wasps aren't interested in your beer. <laughs> They've yes. got much more interesting things to spend their life on. <laughs> but I guess a lot of them are much less conspicuous in terms of our relationship with them, right? Because many of them are tiny. And they live lives that where they don't necessarily come into contact with us. Yeah, exactly. And it's only very much. It's it's very, it, we know that we only notice the nature under our noses, um, and that's why we notice these yellow jacket wasps because they come looking for sugar or meat. Actually, at our, our barbecues. The other wasps. So actually, seventy percent of wasps, about seventy thousand species, don't even have stings. They are parasitoid wasps, which have. Um, an ovipositor which is a very like, it can sometimes be mistaken for a sting it's like this mm. long often ridiculously long actually uh, um, appendage that comes out of its bottom exactly where a sting would be but it sticks out of their body and they use that to lay the egg lay an egg into a prey item so like a, a caterpillar or a beetle larva and then that egg they'll leave that egg once they've laid it in the caterpillar they don't the, they didn't paralyze the caterpillar or anything they just lay the egg they inject a bit of venom as well which uh helps keep the um stop the immune system of the caterpillar attacking 
the egg because when the egg hatches, it hatches into a hungry baby wasp, a larva, and the larva eats the living caterpillar from the inside out. And that's the typical life cycle of a, of, um, a parasitoid wasp. And um, we never notice it. I mean, you, you, you might notice them if there's particularly large species that you come across, but they certainly won't be coming to your picnic. And the ones that you probably mostly see are ones that you might mistake as flies because they often might fly, if I end up in your house in the summer and you look on the windows and there's these little black fly-like things, perhaps a little bit skinnier than a fly. And maybe you can see this protruding ovipositor. Um, and most of those little black things are probably parasitoid wasps. Um, right. And as you say, many of them are absolutely tiny. Um, in fact, you can buy parasitoid wasps on the internet to put around your house um, to help control clothes moths. And the idea that your house might be crawling with tiny parasitoid wasps might be some kind of horror horror movie for many of your listeners. But actually, (laughs) the reality is you never see them. They're tiny and they are laying their eggs in the eggs of the um, of the moth. And they eat basically they are killing the moth. And so as soon as your moths have been all killed, then all the wasps will die out. So it's not like your house will be crawling wasps forever. But that's exactly, you know, this is what these parasitoid wasps are doing all around us. They are controlling these populations of other organisms that we might find as irritating as we do the wasp. Being a human and therefore, at least in theory, a social animal. I think there's probably a tendency to perceive social animals as better than solitary animals, more civilised, more advanced. We're inclined, I think, to approve of animals in which we perceive relatable traits. But wasps are, by and large, solitary. The grotesqueries of the parasitoid lifestyle are fascinating, but I wonder, what advantages are there in being solitary? Well, being less conspicuous than a colony, solitary wasps are perhaps less obvious to predators. Moreover, faced with predation, the option to escape is open to them, whilst the individuals in their colony are duty-bound to defend the nest. Another advantage is the degree to which the solitary wasp can specialise in its hunting. Specialisation and dependence on specific prey has its own drawbacks, of course, but it does mean that these wasps are likely to be experts in specific tasks, tied to that prey with which the wasp is associated. Given that we're examining the diversity of wasps, maybe it would be good to examine a superlative species, a particularly impressive solitary wasp. Solitary wasps are, after all, often small, apparently insignificant animals that might easily be mistaken for a fly. So let's cast our eyes over the tarantula hawk wasp. As animal names go, tarantula hawk wasp is surely one of the best. Tarantula hawk wasp. Three words that chain together to give a sense of menace and edge. And they are menacing, particularly if you're a tarantula. Tarantula hawks are large, impressive animals, the females of which make use of tarantulas as their living larders. Mated females attack tarantulas with a well-placed paralysing sting before dragging the spider back to its burrow. An egg is laid and the tarantula, hairy yet helpless, is sealed up inside the burrow to be fed upon later. When the larva begins to feed, the heart and nervous systems are left for last so as to keep the meat from spoiling. The tarantula hawk is by all accounts rather docile and not especially keen to sting a person. So like so many insects, our fear is misplaced. That said... The tarantula hawk is said to have the most painful sting of any insect. It tops the Schmidt pain scale, with its pain described as blinding, fierce, shockingly electric, a running hairdryer dropped into your bubble bath. Schmidt writes in his fabulous book, The Sting of the Wild, 
that such as the sting pain, almost nobody can maintain normal coordination or cognitive control. He quotes Howard Evans, who upon receiving a number of tarantula hawk stings, opted to crawl into a ditch and cry. Tarantulas, you have my sympathy. You've even used the phrase the wasp. And when we think of the wasp, we're thinking of the yellow and black stripy picnic wasp, right? And yeah. wasps are one of the most diverse groups of animals, probably, right? Of, certainly of insects. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, the beetles are famous, famously occupy that position at the moment as the most diverse or the most species rich of the insects. In fact, mm. possibly the animal kingdom. Um, with 350,000 described species of beetles. But we we suffer from beetle bias, um, we meaning um, insect collectors and entomologists, because beetles are very beautiful, they're often iridescent, they're often quite large and impressive looking, and they're easy to spot, and it, the eye is drawn to a beetle. Mm. And so when when people were started to collect insects and trying to describe them beetles were very much the ones to be described first um whereas something tiny and insignificant or rather abhorrent like a wasp would not be described would not be collected um and so although there's a hundred thousand described species of wasps there are estimates that suggest that there are at least 10 times that um, and there may be even more. So it's very likely that there are more species of wasps than there are of beetles, and that would definitely put wasps up there as the most species rich of the insects and possibly um, in the animal kingdom. If you're enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth, and on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's your own perspective, to share a story, a photo, or what have you. Given that they are so, so diverse, there are so many of them, and they have all these, you know, endless forms, like you say, right? Mm-hmm. Can we be a bit simplistic at the start then in terms of a base level? What makes a wasp a wasp? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, probably we shouldn't be calling all of these things wasps. Um, And, you you know, and actually, if you can go, you can go beyond just the parasitoid wasp. So let's get, let's take a step back. There's 100,000 species of what we currently call wasps. Um, The the most, um, the oldest, the evolutionarily oldest group are the the horntails, sawflies, uh, wood wasps they're sometimes called all those three different names and they are actually those were the original wasps and there's, there's still lots of extant species today um, and they are um, vegetarians so they don't hunt meat they don't parasitize caterpillars they lay their eggs in plants um, and in fact I had some eating my birch tree the other day they actually look the larvae look 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 like caterpillars um, and yes. they feed off plants just like caterpillars do. Um, and so those were the original wasps. And then the parasitoid wasps evolved from an ancestor that was a sawfly like organism. And the innovation there was that they just they, they evolved the ability to parasitize uh, living flesh. 
And there's a really interesting idea as to how that happened, because if you can imagine if you're a if you're a sawfly laying your egg inside a plant or a stem of a, of a plant, um, it's quite likely that you deposited your egg quite close to um, a caterpillar that's burrowed inside that plant, too, and that by some um, accident, your larva chomps a little bit of flesh by accident. And therefore, it, it, over evolutionary time, if that actually ends up being um, advantageous in terms of nutrition or something, then eventually you might get, you can see how that evolutionary jump in diet can go from being vegetarian to meat eater. And so the, the parasitoid wasps, which lay their eggs in meat, have gone through that innovation and they also evolve this very uh, the, the characteristic wasp waste. So I think that's one of the if you're asking what defines yeah. a wasp, then I think this wasp waste is one of the things that we think of as being, oh, that's a wasp and not a bee, for example, because bees are much tubbier and they don't have this thin waste so the sawflies don't have um, this this wasp waste at all they're quite chunky um but the parasitoids by by having this long thin waist they were able to fold their abdomen into much tighter contortions so that they could get their egg delivered to prey in much harder to reach places right, so that okay. that's thought to be possibly one of the reasons why there are so many species of parasitoid wasps because it allowed these sort of diversification of prey use um, across those groups and they also had a little bit of venom as well so the venom was also an innovation but then what we call sort of the hunting or the stinging wasp people think of a wasp as a stinging one there's actually only about 33,000 I say only there are 33,000 <laughs> species of described hunting wasp just to put that in perspective as an aside there are only 22,000 species of bees and there right, are only okay. Um, about 18,000 species of ants. So, you know, wasps are much more diverse than um, even that, just the hunting wasps are much more diverse than the bees and the ants. So the hunting wasps, what did they do? They, 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 they modified the ovipositor to be a sting. And so they no longer use that thing that sticks out of their abdomen to deposit an egg. They used it instead to just simply deposit venom. And it became much more weaponized. So it became a, a weapon that they used to deliver venom, which would have neurotoxins and antibiotics and antiviral properties, which would paralyze their prey. So these hunting wasps would originally solitary live alone. They'd hunt a, a caterpillar or a spider, paralyze it, bring it to their underground burrow, bury it um, with an egg. And they'd seal it up and say goodbye. And then the egg would do exactly what it does. And the parasitoid wasp would hatch and eat the living larder. But this lar but, it, but the difference from a parasitoid wasp for these hunting wasps is that the prey is paralyzed. So it can't move. It can't go no. about its business. And then finally, you know, the most recent innovation would be these so the social wasps, which then stopped using their stings to paralyze. And they instead use their stings in defense to defend the colony. And that's what it's doing when you're flapping at it at your picnic. It's just defending <laughs> itself. <laughs> and is it within the social wasps that we also have the kind of the nest building? Yeah. So the the innovation alongside becoming a hunter is that you need a nest. You need somewhere to put your prey and lay your eggs so it's protected from predators. Um, and so normally with a solitary wasp, that will be a hole in the ground or it might be 
um, a stem of a plant or it might be between the bricks of your house. Um, and so they build, but they, but the nests are very simple. They feel very, they build very simple nests. The social wasps, on the other hand, they, many of them do build quite elaborate nests. And in fact, you know, our well-known picnic botherer um, builds her nest out of paper. So she'll, you'll see her scraping um, bark off your uh, dead trees around you or maybe your garden fence or your shed. And she'll mix it up with saliva and she'll make it into this beautiful, thin, but very strong paper. And if you have a, a, um, a vespula, a, a yellow jacket wasp nest in your in your loft or your shed and you get the chance to study it when all the wasps have gone then I do recommend you have a look because it's a phenomenal uh, feat of natural architecture in the same way that a honeybee colony has different combs um, these wasp colonies have um, combs which are held together with very strong struts and then around it it's often got this this big thick envelope with several layers um, and the different kinds of paper Different kinds of paper are used to build the envelope, the comb, and the struts between the combs. So, the co if you imagine like a, a high fly block, block of flats, these yes. combs form these different layers. Um, and the space between the combs is just big enough for the wasps to move around. And the, all, the, all the combs obviously house the brood in the same way that a honeybee comb would. With the, the bees and the ants, these are animals that are within the same group as the wasps, right? So these the behaviors that they exhibit in the the honey the honeybees hive and or honeybees nest rather and ant colonies and things these are behaviors that have been derived from from wasp behaviors right um well yeah maybe i mean they so you're okay. right in that bees bees and ants are just wasps so bees are right. wasps that have forgotten how to hunt so they've reverted to their vegetarian or I mean, maybe they've rediscovered how to how to be vegetarian. If we think about the orig original wasp being the sorcerer, sure. so most bees are solitary, just like solitary wasps, and they will build a very simple burrow, or they'll use the um, empty stems, like your bee hotel, for example, and they'll put pollen in there along with uh, an egg, um, and they'll seal it up. So in in many ways, they're they're sort of their life cycle the the way their nesting cycle is very similar to a solitary wasp it's just that they provision it with pollen rather than prey um, but the social bees of which there are basically the honeybees and the bumblebees and the um stingless bees um which you find in the tropics they do build nests much more um extravagant nests than that a little bit like bees and uh, a little bit like uh wasps but um bumblebees are really messy they like just have a jungle yeah. and if ants as well ants obviously yeah, everyone's dug up an ant nest yeah. either intentionally or accidentally and it's just piles of brood just chucked in there and lying around and if you disturb them it's chaos they all grab around some bit of brood and scuttle off it's terribly disorganized it feels like more sort of pro-wasp propaganda again that's what <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, of course, ants are just wasps that have forgotten how to fly, at least most right. of them have forgotten how to fly, except for the, the sexuals. Um, so they, they certainly didn't carry, didn't inherit or maybe they lost the ability to build a tidy nest. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, apart from the honeybees uh, and actually the stingless bees as well, which do build very neat cones, um, with cells very much like the the uh, the vespine wasps, the yellow jacket wasps, and the hornets. 
they are yeah bees that aren't particularly impressive in their architecture either i think i think possibly it's safe to say that the uh, the nests of the vespula wasps are probably one of the most incredible products of natural architecture and given how much credit the the beehive and the, the kind of the honeycomb vibe has got through aesthetics and things it, it seems a bit a bit of a shame that the wasp nest has been so neglected well, I think it's because, you know, we, we do benefit from two, well, several sure. millennia of, um, of knowledge about honeybees. You know, we've been farming honeybees. They are, they are the, the semi-domesticated. They're like the equivalent of the cow, insect cow, yes. <laughs> in that we farm them. Um, and yet we didn't, we haven't bothered to try doing that with wasps. And if we take time to look at wasps, I mean, you know, it's not just the yellow jacket nests that are so incredible and impressive. Um, it's also the... Uh, this, I didn't talk about these much in the book, actually. There wasn't enough space. I need another book for this. But the Epipolar. For the revision. I know, the revision, second edition. Um, there was the swarm founding wasps that you get through um, Central and South America are incredible. So these are all social wasps and they build, um, they live in, in, in various state uh, sizes of society. Some of them will live in quite small groups of only a few hundred wasps. Others will have literally thousands and thousands tens of thousands of individuals living in these um these nests and some nests they build the nests mostly out of paper but sometimes out of mud um and they just you know you you th- think of a think of a beautiful shaped object like a vase or you know anything that you you mm. have something that's a pleasing and aesthetically pleasing i can guarantee that there will be a wasp nest that almost looks the same <laughs> <laughs> Um, they're just phenomenal. They're sometimes some of them look like I, I discovered this flat cow pats. They, you know, that's not particularly beautiful, but you know, they, they that's exactly what they look like. Others are beautiful um, balls, like perfect balls, like footballs. Um, others look like chamber pots. Others look. I don't know, there isn't even a word to describe what some of them look like. They, they look like sort of kind of. There's some that look like a guitar, like they've got a big sort of bold. <laughs> shapes or like a, a mandolin or something they're incredible um and we just hardly ever hear about them i mean they're, they're massively understudied um so the vespine Vesp- nests are utterly incredible in their architecture but um the, uh, there are a lot of other social wasps out there to teach us more about architecture if we are trying to fly the flag for the wasp and trying to say you know what everyone gives a bee so much time and everyone gives the ant so much time and the the termite maybe even but you Take a look at what the wasps are capable of, because you think they're just fuss, you know, they, they just bothersome, but they are, they are the incredible architects. Sociality in insects is one of the things that I think is just mind-boggling. It's one of the things that most attracts me to the sort of the field. And you've, you've sort of talked about the the generic life cycle or lifestyle of a parasitoid wasp or a, a wasp that provisions its young in that sense. Is there a generic lifestyle for a social wasp? No, well, kind of. I mean, I guess there is. It depends on where they are in the in the world. So in right. in the temperate regions, so like places like the UK or in Spain where you are, um, they will have they'll be seasonal. So hmm. the a mated queen who had uh, hibernated over the winter um, will emerge in the spring and she'll found her nest. She'll, she'll, she'll build a nest, she'll find a nesting site herself. She will find some 
paper um, and builds that nest and she'll lay the first eggs and she'll then feed those eggs. So she'll feed the larvae as they develop. And once those uh, those larvae um, have uh, pupated and emerge as adults, those will be her first workers. So those first brood are her, are her workers. And from that moment on, she won't leave the nest. Um, and the workers will do all the foraging and the nest and the bringing in of nest material. Okay. And she will be, she's the matriarch then, she is the egg layer. Um, and then over the course of the summer, the nest will grow exponentially in size as many, many more workers emerge and they're able to rear more and more brood, which of course are the offspring of the queen. Remember that the queen is their mum. So they're mm-hmm. helping raising they're helping raise siblings. And so by doing by doing that, they're passing on their genes by using the siblings as kind of vehicles. <laughs> but of course the first for the first few weeks actually they are just rearing raw workers. And the right. workers are not going to reproduce in at least in a yellow jacket colony um, or a hornet colony, they won't. Um, and then towards the end of the end of the summer, though the queen will switch to laying sexual brood. And actually in a in a yellow jacket or a hornet colony, they will build um, a bigger cells, which is where all the sexual queens are produced. Males are sometimes reared in the worker cells, actually. It's quite um, interesting. Um, but so just like you have royal cells in the honeybee, you have royal cells in the wasps as well, in the yellow jacket wasps. Um, and when those emerge, they will then be the, they'll go off and mate and the males will die. And the females will, the mated females, they store the sperm from uh, the male or males that they've mated with in a little sack inside their abdomen. Um, And that sperm will be enough for them to fertilise thousands and thousands of eggs the next spring. But they'll go into, those queens, those mated queens uh, will go into hibernation until the next spring and so and so on. The, the life cycle goes on. So that's a typical life cycle of a, a yellow jacket or or um hornet nest. So not dissimilar to a to a, a honeybee life cycle. Well it is actually because honeybees are um perennial colonies. So if you've got a honeybee colony in your in your roof or um chimney, they will be they could potentially be there for years because nice. the queen okay. lives for years. Whereas in a in a yellow jacket colony the queen only lives for a, a, a season. And then at the end of the end of the season, she dies along with all the workers and the males. And it's only the new generation of mated sexual young queens who survive to the next generation next year. So they are quite different in that respect. And I think people often, you know, when they when they realise they've got a wasp colony in the attic at the end of September, they start to panic. That, oh my god, we've got wasps. <laughs> But the reality is that they've only got wasps for like another few weeks and then the right, whole okay. lot will be gone. And, you know, it's the critical time of a uh, reproductive period of the colony cycle. So you don't want to be killing the nest at that point because the sexuals are about to disperse. And um, and those are the next generation. Those without they are the next generation of your your local pest controllers who are going to be eating the the pests, the insect pests in your garden next year. So you really don't want to kill the colony, especially at that point in the in the summer or in the in the autumn. 
Um, but so that's kind of the typical like complex social uh, life cycle of these Vespine wasps. But as I said, there's lots of other kinds of so- social wasps. And depending on where they are in the world, they have different kinds of nesting cycles. But just to bring us back to Europe again, you, particularly where you are in Spain, you do have lots of these independent founding nests, these, these much more simple societies uh, of polistes or pa- paper wasps, they yes. And they have these open nests. You'll see they're much smaller. They're about the size of your, your fist. And you can see there's no envelope around them. You can see the wasp sitting on them. Um, they let you know they're there. If you knock into them, you will get stung. <laughs> um, and they will bother you if you knock into them. But they're less likely to come to your picnic because they're less, they're less interested in what you have to offer them. Um, and they're certainly not interested, very interested anyway, in the meat that you have on your on your barbecue because they are much more specific in the kinds of prey that they will hunt. They'll hunt mostly caterpillars, whereas the Vesp- Vespula wasps, the yellow jackets, will just they'll hunt anything that's available. But the nesting cycle of those is very similar. The main difference is that the the workers still retain the ability to become a queen if the opportunity arises. So if the queen dies, then her workers, uh, one of them, will become the new queen as long as there's males around to mate with. Right. Um, okay. And so the main, so so those those species, these Polistes wasps, actually are, kind of give us sort of a, a snapshot proxy into what it what what the early stages of social evolution might have been like. Um, because we think that the sort of the, the status quo is that we think that 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 sociality, these complex societies, must have evolved from a simpler form of sociality, a simpler ancestor, and um, everything ultimately evolved from a solitary ancestor. Um, so these social, these Polistes wasps, um, the workers are are able to become queens themselves, which is really interesting from a scientific perspective because it's a form of phenotypic plasticity where they're able to express different behaviours depending on the opportunities available to them. It reinforces that idea, right, of the endless forms as opposed to the sort of stereotyped view we might have of what a wasp colony is. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the endless forms thing is, it, that is one of the main messages of the book, obviously, that there are endless forms. But but I think, you know, I, I don't want to do the yellow jacket wasps a disservice. You know, I think... In in a way, they are one of the most fascinating creatures on the planet. And in one of the chapters in my book, I, I, I compare them with the honeybee because they are, these Vespula wasps, they are very much like the, the, the honeybee of the wasp world. And everything that is as incredible and awesome in the honeybee is there in, the wasp, in those wasps as well. It's just that we haven't bothered to look. Um, so actually in the book I had this conversation with Aristotle um, who actually wrote about wasps 2400 years ago um, along with honeybees and ants uh, sorry along with honeybees and humans Um, and actually astonishingly what he wrote about the wasps remains accurate today Um, and I think that's really incredible because it's not like he benefited from thousands of years of of of, um, domestication of the wasps like he did with the uh, with the uh, with the honeybee so it's quite phenomenal that he got so much right about the wasps um, given that he wouldn't the amount of effort that he and his students would have put into studying them was was far less than the honeybee 
now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Grubbing the Filth and want to make a donation like a benevolent Victorian, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast, but you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. You do talk in the book about the process of observing wasps' nests and of observing social behaviour in wasps. If you didn't like wasps, and if you were afraid of wasps, it sounds like a thoroughly unpleasant experience. But I guess for you, fascinating, right? By the way, I should say, never been stung, by the way. It's, uh, You've never been stung? Wow, okay. That's no, not, not by bee or by wasp, but I do very badly with nestles. Oh, God. In observing wasps and in observing nests, because to a layperson, it just sort of looks like chaos. How do you make sense of, of the social interactions of wasps as an observer? It could, because it seems so overwhelming as a thing to, to try and perceive. Yeah, I guess it does. Um, I, I think the more you study, once you start to study them, and it's actually not really difficult, it's not rocket science, um, you get to understand them better. And I think I, I talk in the book about how watching the wasps is a little bit like watching a soap opera um, mm. in that it's full of drama um, and uh, fights and mutual admiration and everything that goes along with um, backstabbing and overthrowing and asbos and punishment and policing. You know, it's all there. And, and the actual process of studying them, particularly the, um, the Polistes wasps, which don't have an envelope on them, they're actually really easy to study because you can take them off the nest with just with forceps. Um, and and we wear obviously we also wear we always wear protective gear, but the the most important bit of equipment for a wasp scientist is a pair of washing up gloves, like good old marigolds. Right. Um, <laughs> you put your marigolds on, and you put your bee hat on, and you're sorted. You'll be fine. That's all. Pretty much all you need. It's very low budget. <laughs> yes. Um, and you can we mark the wasps individually with like little paint dots, or sometimes if they're big enough, we'll okay. put those bee tags on the tags that beekeepers use to tag their queens because those are quite useful because they've got numbers on them um, and then each wasp is branded for life um, and we can follow her behavior we can um, write down or you know record a video what she's doing and how she interacts with other wasps and that's the point when it really does you do become slightly obsessed at watching the wasps and what's number 32 going to do? Is she going to bite? She's going to try and bite number 46. But number 46, is going to get, she's going to give her back. You know, she's going to give as good as she gets. Um, and you, you sort of get into the whole drama of it. And it is like watching a mini insect soap opera. Um, I think the best way for people to understand this, the nearest thing, I think, is meerkats. So everybody's seen meerkats yes. on David Attenborough programs, and the way that they they do the way that they're portrayed in these nature documentaries is is rather anthropocentric. You know, they get you to really uh, um, empathise with the sentry who's standing up there on the rock, looking out for the predator, and you know the the, the carers who are looking after the offspring, the babysitters, um, and you get into the you can really feel that you understand their roles in that group society. Uh, and in fact, these Polistes wasps are just like an insect form of a meerkat society. Um, and so in the same way that you can sort of 
step into the shoes of a particular meerkat in a group and try and understand what they're doing. You can do the same with the wasp. I know it sounds crazy, but <laughs> it's... Um, so um, William Hamilton, who was a, a famous evolutionary biologist um, in the 1960s, he did some uh, founding work on social insects. And actually, he came up with a theory that it helped us explain how and why these social uh, societies can evolve. Um, but one of the things he said um, in his writings was that uh, he would defy anyone to not fall in love with wasps or not at least be enthralled by watching a nest of Polistes wasps for an hour and after that hour. And every child, every school child, he says, should watch a wasp nest for an hour and then they will understand what it's all about and they will that will change their perceptions maybe we need to get an hour of wasp watching for every child on the national curriculum <laughs> i'll work on it i'll see what i can do as a as, a, as an educator I'll, I'll put it forward i think in terms of health and safety that might be where you get sort of hamstrung but we'll, well have we a bash videos we could give them videos it should be in the new do you know what um... i was thinking that if yeah, you, you put natural... on the whiteboard yeah but the new Natural History GCSE, they should totally have a wasp watching session. I'd bring it lower, <laughs> bring it in at bring it in a primary level so that I can enjoy it. Oh, On the whiteboard, true. you tell the children, right, choose a wasp and watch it, see what it does. Yeah. And also, with a increased focus on kind of mindfulness and mental health, it sounds like quite a meditative process watching a, a wasp's nest. Well, I don't know, it is quite stressful because you do get a bit <laughs> not on a screen. You know, <laughs> it gets a bit drawn up in it all but yes no I guess sure. it could be it could be mindful at some point um but actually another thing that we might be quite interested in is that we've got a little wasp uh wasp society get computer game um okay. which is suitable for all ages but certainly um older primary school kids my, my six-year-old plays it happily and it's called it's wasplove.com and it's actually based on our research and a com- we had this company um, from Cornwall make uh, this 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 game and uh, all the decisions of what you have to basically you've built the colony you you have the wasp colony and you're the queen and they had to get the queen to lay eggs but she still had to go off foraging so you've got to tell her what to do and then once the workers hatch you have to then tell them what to do and go off foraging and then you get sprayed by pesticides or foragers get lost in rainstorms and you've got to get it right you've got to know whether you're laying a worker egg or a queen or, or a sexual egg and it teaches you about how the colony ticks and the life cycle of those colonies and what makes a successful society. Um, I'm actually very, very bad at playing it, <laughs> but I think it's because I'm exceedingly bad at any computer game. Right. Um, yeah. but certainly some of my students have been totally addicted to it to an unhealthy level. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, the second this, we finish talking, I'm going to be straight on this. You know. <laughs> it's lots of fun. It is really great. Um, well, thank you so much for thinking about Wasp. They, they are such interesting animals that what I take away from this is that if you're not blinded to something by that kind of cultural distaste for it, there is this vast world of interest to discover and there is myriad lives and wonderment in that. I like to ask people, you know, we don't know everything about wasps, we don't know everything about anything. And there must be questions that, that you have that Answering that question seems kind of unattainable at this stage, maybe, even if it's a some lofty idea. So if you could kind of wave a magic wand and have any question about wasps answered, learn anything about wasps, what would you want to know? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've got lots, but I think the one that I feel is most pertinent and most important and the one that would give people you know no excuse but to value wasps is to be able to put a value an economic value on the services of wasps in the environment as we do for bees so we know that bees and other pollinators are worth 250 billion dollars a year to agriculture and you know you don't have to persuade many people beyond just that figure that they should be worrying about bees in their garden or on their farm or wherever and I think what we need is an equivalent value to put on wasps but we are only just starting that kind of research in that area um hopefully sorry burping hopefully it'll take off and um, people, and there are many more people more interested now in wasp ecosystem services. And I have a hunch that in the next few years we'll be, maybe we'll see some change in that. Um, but you know, we need to know that value. We need to know what is it. We ever. I hate. I hate the fact. I actually hate economics. I hate the fact that we have to have a finance. Yes. So it's just capitalism. It's just dreadful that we have to have a monetary value put on nature. But sadly, this is the only thing that turns. Um, people's heads turns government policies yeah. into things that are actually going to be yeah exactly make the powers that be sit up and take notice the government the UK government and other governments around the world have sat up and taken notice of pollinators of bees in particular and now they need to do the same for other parts of natural worlds and I think to do that us scientists have to provide them with the inexcusable evidence that these things are important and we need to learn more about them in order that we can look after them preserve them and harness their the services that they provide to the planet absolutely well that's a very pragmatic and sobering answer but thank you so much and thank you for speaking to me tonight it's been wonderful to chat about it love the book and i'd encourage anyone to go out and buy themselves a copy of endless forms uh thank you again sorry Thank you so much. This has been such fun. It's good for me to remind myself that there's always more to know. With invertebrates, so often so small, so distant and difficult to make sense of, we're restricted in what we can understand, even upon careful observation. I hope that this episode has been illuminating for you. We are all aware of wasps, but now I hope that awareness is tempered with some nuance and a sense of quite how much there is to know about wasps. From your striped social animals who live in glorious paper nests, to solitary hunters, Menace to the caterpillar community who would take a very dim view of the wasp enthusiasm which I hope you now feel. But again, as Sarian commented, please don't let our emphasis on wasp diversity distract you from the wonder of the common yellow jacket wasp, the one that fusses around pints with a threatening buzz. They are themselves master architects embroiled in a fascinating social world which we can hardly fathom. Fondly I recall the sound of their jaws scratching away at mum and dad's garden furniture, a sound that spoke of something astonishing being built somewhere out of sight. It would be impractical and mentally exhausting to be constantly in awe of the natural world, but I'm going to allow myself a little awe, conscious of the endless forms of wasps, buzzing, hunting, building and foraging all around us. Rubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. My thanks again to Professor Sarian Sumner. You can find Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter, at GITF Podcast, or Instagram, 
at grubbinginthefilth. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com.